you can open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3, we're going to cross a few things tonight. We're going to cross the Jordan River. We're going to cross a boundary also in the book of Joshua. From what I can tell, no one's tried to preach Joshua 3, 4, and 5 together. You always see Joshua 3 and 4, but we're going to tack on 5 as well and hopefully get out of here before 9. So um, let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this time we get to gather. Thank you for the joy that we can sing about. Um, not just joyful noises, but truths about you that we can um, echo back and repeat back to you. Um, may our whole entire lives be a response of praise and worship to you for all the great things you have done, for the greatness of who you are. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Obviously, a very uh, popular word in church circles is worship. And worship is often thrown about and sometimes misunderstood, perhaps. What is worship? Worship, if you look at it biblically, isn't just something we do on Sundays. It's not just something you do maybe twice a week or once a week. Worship is not the time between uh, the announcements and the message that has music in it. Worship is also not just a certain rhythm that the drummer and guitarist reach, and then you reach certain moments of worship. Worship also isn't when no instruments are playing at all, and it's just your voices, so it was more of a worshipful that way. That's not also how the Bible chiefly describes worship. It's not a feeling. No, for the Christian, worship is actually a characteristic, a description of your entire life. At moments, your life of worship manifests worship in singing, but worship is meant to be the character and the description of the entire life of the Christian. It says in Romans 12:1, I exhort you by the mercies of God, based on all of these glorious gospel truths that I've already written to you in, in 11 chapters. I exhort you by the mercies of God, Paul writes, to present your bodies as a sacrifice. And then he describes it, living, holy, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. A, a Christian is supposed to be a walking, constant worshiper. That is what a Christian is. You are saved by Christ for a purpose, and that is that you praise and worship your God and Savior. You worship Christ in the way you live. You worship Christ in the way you think. You worship Christ by the thoughts you refuse to think, or the thoughts you insist on thinking. You show worship to Christ in everything you do. Your whole life can be an act of worship to Christ. And what is this based on? According to Romans 12, it's based on all of the things that God has done for you and all of the great uh, things that God is as well. And this is not the only thing that the Bible tells us about worship, obviously. The, wor the Bible doesn't just say that believers are worshipers. The Bible actually says that all people are worshipers. Maybe you didn't think about that either. Everybody, every day of their life is worshiping something. Every moment of history has people worshiping something. But only the Christian who is in Christ can worship God as they were created to worship him. We can worship God finally the right way in Christ, but in Christ alone. Because we can't just worship God in ourselves. We have to worship God in the righteousness that comes to us in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. And only then are we living as we were meant to live as creatures, only in Christ. Here's a definition of worship that we've used at uh, summer camps in the past. Uh, some of you old people may remember some of this. Old people. By old, I mean like 21 years old. Uh, so 
Noel's here. All right, so uh, uh, here's the definition of worship. It is our right response to who God is and what he has done. Worship is uh, us responding to who God is and what he has done. Our lives are supposed to be marked by worship from sunup to sundown because of who God is and what he has done. That, that is worship. And, and once again, sometimes, sometimes this causes us to sing together, especially when God's people get together. We love to sing together and praise God for what? For who he is and what he has done. But if worship is our purpose, uh, we ought to be busy about it and get and, and become better at it and become sanctified in it. And if worship is also our response, we should also make ourselves ready to worship. Just because you were made to worship, just because it's your calling to worship, doesn't mean you're always ready to worship. Ready to worship. If you look at Joshua five, uh, 3 through 5, Joshua 3 through 5 is actually all about worship. Um, God is not as concerned about warfare and real estate as he is about worship, the worship of his people. Actually, it could be argued that all of Joshua is actually about worship. It's about praising God for who he is. It's about trusting him for his faithfulness, who he is and what he has done. God wants, actually, to form worship in the hearts of his people as they are about to go into the land that he has promised them. He wants to make them a people that is ready to worship him every day of their life, every moment of their life, every thought of their life. He wants to make his people ready to worship him. That that word ready, ready implies that they, they have practiced this, they're prepared they're, 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 they're setting themselves up for an automatic response, right? If you're ready to worship God, it means you are ready, you are, you are prepared, you're practiced. This is going to happen. Tonight, God wants to kind of practice his people to see him better and worship him better in all of their life. And we'll see, we'll see what a life that is ready to worship him daily looks like as well tonight. It's, it, it looks like uh, three things that we're going to look at. Uh, a life ready to worship daily uh, pivots off of the past. It prioritizes in the present and it plans for the future. And I would say to you that you also need to be ready to live lives that are fully worshiping to God. So these are things that you need to learn as well. So that's how we're going to look at it. Let's look at the life that is ready to worship. Point number one, a life that is ready to worship pivots off the past. It pivots off the past. What, is, what does pivot mean? Well, you know, in basketball, when you're trying to make a, you make a move, and you're trying to juke somebody and break their ankles, you've got to pivot fast. And, and really, all of your weight is, is, is being turned in a different direction, and you're moving in a new, in a new way, right? When you're trying to, trying to move something maybe heavy, you've kind of got to pivot it a little bit, and that causes the whole body to move, right? Uh, your worship, your whole body of worship, your whole life of worship needs to pivot, move in a certain direction. It needs to pivot off of something called the past. This is how you shift your life from being a non-worshipper to a worshiper. When your life is saturated in what God has done for you and who he is in the past. God calls his people to a healthy life of worship through a healthy memory of him. And that's what we'll see here tonight as well. It's true for you. It's true for Israel. The life of worship actually is a very logical thing. As you think about the past, you make logical statements about who your God is and what he has done and what that means for you. Let's turn here to Joshua 3 and see how Israel is to pivot off of their past to, to, to orient themselves, to move forward through pivoting off the past. First, we see Israel crossing the Jordan here. Uh, verse 1, then Joshua rose early in the morning 
And he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. Now it happened that at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. The people of Israel have now approached. They've slowly and slowly, slowly but surely, have gotten closer and closer to this thing called the Jordan River. And now watch this. They sit here at the foot of the Jordan River for three days. Now, there might have been some explanations for why they sat there for three days. Maybe it took three days for the entire nation of Israel to get down to the Jordan River. But I kind of want to think and suggest to you that God wanted them to sit there at the banks of the Jordan River so that they could look at it. So they just watch the Jordan River for three days straight. Because what happens when you watch this Jordan River for three days straight? You start asking some questions. How in the world? Are we going to get through this river? Now, there's some background here, obviously, that would be helpful. In uh, Joshua 3.15, it talks about how this is the harvest time. And now, to us, the harvest time means it's the dry time. But actually, to them, the harvest time meant it was the, the, the end of the wet season. So, Mount Hermon, which was up in the north which had been just filling with snow all this time, is now melting and letting out all of this water. And where is this water going? Well, it's going down through the the Hula Lake, but also it's dipping into what we know as the Galilee Sea or the Sea of Galilee. And then it goes into the Jordan River and starts washing downwards. And of course, the Jordan River is fed also by all sorts of other rivers because at the bottom of the Jordan River is something we like to call the lowest point on the planet which is the Dead Sea, the very lowest place, 24 feet below sea level, I believe. And so all the water from everywhere is just rushing down the Jordan River. And you can imagine, you can imagine how much water this could potentially be. Now, back in the day before, like governments, the governments of Jordan and the governments of Israel were kind of like siphoning off the Jordan River to use it for agricultural purposes like we do today. The the Jordan River could be a gnarly, frightening thing to be to be quite honest with you. Uh, so, for, for example, you, you could see that uh, the whole Jordan Valley could, could, could be several miles wide at some places, but right down the middle of the Jordan Valley would kind of snake this little serpentine little river that would move back and forth. And, and in, the, in the drier seasons, of course, the Jordan River maybe wouldn't be that big in places. But in the wet season, when the water's rushing... The Jordan River could be very, very deep, very dangerous, very fast, and very frightening, and very long. It could be even up to a mile uh, across at some points of the Jordan River. And once again, I'll remind you of a vivid illustration of this. When we were going up to winter retreat, you looked at the river and you're like, not scared of that. I want to swim in that. But when we were going back down from the winter retreat... I was terrified. Matter of fact, I was, in, I was looking in my rearview mirror the entire time. Is Connie still there? Is Connie's van still there? Is Connie's van still there? Because we were going through massive rivers, and it was scary. It was frightening. Um, a river can become very dangerous very fast, especially when you have a whole mountain of Hermon melting into it. A matter of fact, we get, we get a hint that crossing the river in the harvest season is a very heroic thing to do. Later in the Bible, we have, uh, this is a random reference, I know, but it, it's kind of cool to me. Uh, First Chronicles 12, we actually see David David's mighty men being described. These are, these are David's green berets. These are the toughest, meanest, baddest guys in the nation of Israel. And you know, one way that the, the narrator uh, uses to describe how big and bad these guys are? Well, these guys, they cross the Jordan River at harvest time. And maybe, actually, this kind of makes me think about those spies. Maybe one of the reasons why the spies stood out so well in Jericho was because you had to be like a Navy SEAL to cross this river. And there's these wet Navy SEALs walking through town. I wonder who those people are, right? Anyway, either way, it is not an easy task to cross the Jordan River in the harvest time. And the people have to sit here for three days looking at a river that could possibly be flooding its all of its banks and a mile wide. 12 feet deep, rushing water, all shooting down to the Dead Sea. It's almost as if God wants them to see. 
God wants them to look, and God wants them to almost be afraid. And actually, as we read Joshua 3 and 4, we we become quickly aware of something. This doesn't read like a typical um, action sequence in the Bible. Actually, Joshua 3 and 5 sound a whole lot more like Exodus 26 through 40 sound to us. And if some of you don't know what Exodus 26 through 40 are, that's when God is giving instructions for how the tabernacle is going to be built. It's actually kind of boring. It's kind of repetitious, right? Uh, God says, build it this way, exactly this way, with this kind of equipment, and then this, and then that. And then the narrator says, and then they built it exactly this way, with this kind of equipment. And it is, it's just like, it, it says God says something, and then instantly the people repeat everything that God tells them to do. That is worship language for we are obeying God. This is, this is an act of worship to do this exactly as he has told us to do. Actually, Joshua 3 through 5 then is is a lot like the, the worship that Israel was doing when they were preparing uh, for the tabernacle. But let's keep reading. We're at verse 3 here. We've got to keep moving if we're going to get through three chapters. Um, they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it. What you... Uh, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, notice here, once again, God really wants his people to be spectators. How do you know this? Because notice he wants them to be far away from the ark. Notice the purpose of being far away from the ark. It isn't because the ark is terrifying and holy, although it is. The purpose is so that they can see where the ark is going and that they can follow it. And, and, more, and more realistically, so that they can see what God is going to do with the ark in the Jordan River. 2,000 cubits, of course, all of you know, is uh, 1,000 yards, which of course, all of you know how far that is. Uh, but for the one of you that have no idea what 1,000 yards is, if you were to go from here all the way to about Weibel Road, that's about 1,000 yards, I think. Uh, that's half a mile or so. So that is how far away they had to stay from the ark. This was to give them distance so that they could see what was about to happen. Once again, God really wants his people to see what's about to happen. Because it's, it's going to be amazing. It's so exciting. You can't wait. Even... Hearing me talk about it, you're excited. What's going to happen? Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Set yourself apart as holy for tomorrow. Yahweh will do wondrous deeds among you. Notice, once again, the the people have to be spiritually prepared. It it almost gets them mentally alert so that they focus. It's almost like they're saying, Hey, what's, what's about to happen here at the Jordan River? This is significant, and I should get plenty of rest before it so that I can watch it. But then it goes on, verse 6. And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Carry the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, This day I will begin to magnify you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Moreover, you shall command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come near and hear the words of Yahweh your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Those are all the inhabitants of the land, by the way. Behold, the the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. So now, take for yourselves twelve men from the twelve tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. Notice, notice, once again, just as the Ark is advancing, they're constantly pausing to talk all the time. 
What's going to happen? Why are they doing this? It's kind of like me constantly stopping reading so I can explain something to you. It gets a little bit annoying. I want to know what's going to happen, David. Verse 13. And Joshua said, It will be that when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of Yahweh, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off, And the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So it happened that when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people, when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all of its banks all the days of the harvest. Notice the tension. Notice how almost annoying this is. Just tell me what's going to happen. It's kind of like how I have those annoying slideshows at summer camp where I'm saying, well, now we're going to present the teams. But first, I want to give you all three years ago's teams. It just... It annoys you a little bit, but did you notice it is drawing your attention? It is making you want to know what's going to happen. And they keep repeating details, and it it just focuses you in on what is happening. God wants your undivided attention here. And you don't want to miss it. Verse 16. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down towards the sea uh, of the Arabia, the salt sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho, and the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had completed the crossing of the Jordan. By the way, it's interesting to me, uh, the water was stopped about 10 miles upstream, but instantly dries up the moment the priests set their feet in the water. So those pictures that you see of, you know, the priests coming in the water like (laughs) probably aren't right because the water was at least 10 miles upstream. Notice this, though. Everyone is obeying the word of the Lord. Everything is just repeating. God says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to do this, and then this is going to happen. And then the narration just goes, and it repeats perfectly. Everyone is obeying the command of the Lord. And notice also, what is also perfectly obeying the command of the Lord, the water itself is doing exactly what the Lord God said it would do. It is being cut off. It is standing up. It is rising up in a heap. Notice this raging torrent is at the beck and call of God and lives to glorify God in whatever he does or says. Now, what does God want you to see here? What does God want you to see here? Well, it's all tucked into the suspense a little bit. 3 verse 10 told us this, you know, by this you will know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. What does God want you to see? God wants you to see that he is a God who is different. He is a living God. He is different. Different than who? Different than all of the other nations' gods. Well, just for, for, for reading, this is a constant refrain in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 96, verse 5. All the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. What does this story tell you about your God? This God is the creator and controller of the world. Or I love Psalm 115, uh, verse, verse 2, the mocking nations. Oh, why should the nations say, where now is their God? 
But our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have noses but do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. But our God is different. Our God speaks, and with his hand he controls. Our God is different. But God also wants you to see something else. Your God is among you, too. Right? Notice. You shall know that the living God is among you. He is present. He is going to bring about his promises personally. But then also, you you should also see here that your God will assuredly do what he has promised. Notice that word. He will assuredly dispossess. In the original, I love it whenever this Hebrew construction comes. But it's a construction, it sounds like this, literally. Really fun, really fun. To drive out, he will drive out. Which adds a sense of certainty of intensification, this will surely happen. Because look what he can do. Look at how this water is nothing to him. He will assuredly do what he has promised. Now how does this contribute to worship? Every pivot you make, every pivot you make in your life uh, needs to be lived out of this, Israel. You need to constantly be remembering this, Israel. You will have assurance and conviction, and you will have worship in everything you do as you remember what has happened here. Remember this day. Remember it always. As a matter of fact, notice, memory is very important. Just the structure of the story alone. I just read it for you, but uh, 14 through 17 kind of records the crossing of the Jordan. But did you know four... Um, 10 through 14 kind of repeats the crossing all over again. So you have two stories of Israel crossing. One kind of covers the first part of the crossing, and the other part kind of covers the second part. But the essential quality is they crossed. As a matter of fact, you see that word repeated again and again and again. Verse 16, they crossed, they crossed, they crossed. 4.11, they're crossing. 4.12, they're crossing, they're crossing, they're crossing. But what is between these two crossing stories? God tells Joshua to grab some stones from the feet of where the priests are and bring them to their campsite that night and put these stones as a memorial to their God for who he is and what he has done. And what was the purpose of a pile of rocks? Well, these these rocks have a great purpose. Look at 419. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of, the Jer- the, of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. Then he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean? Now God is smart, right? You know they're going to ask, Right? You're going to put a random pile of stones, and then your kids are going to say, what do these stones mean? Then you shall make your children know, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry land. For Yahweh your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as Yahweh your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is strong, so that you may fear Yahweh, your God, forever. What's the purpose of these rocks? Well, one, you could say it's to, it's to magnify Joshua as the new Moses, but, but really, primarily, what is it, what's the purpose of this? These rocks are meant to magnify your God before you, aren't they? This is who our God is. He He dried up the Jordan just like he dried up the Red Sea. And as a result, right? These rocks are to magnify your assurance and your worship as your God is magnified in your heart. 
Where does assurance of salvation come from? Where does a worship-filled life come from? From a view of a very big, powerful God who can't be stopped by anything. The life of worship, though, is a, is a logical thing. Notice, God spends a lot of time setting up the children of Israel so that they can remember and also so that they can make a logical inference. Uh, this God is still living today. This is the God that dried up the Jordan, just like he dried up the Red Sea. Therefore, I can be assured that he can handle whatever problem I am facing now today. Now, notice there's a logical sense to this. It is what I like to see as a, a greater to lesser argument. If God can do this, this big thing, I can trust him in the small areas of my life. If God is glorious in this big way, I should worship him for that. But I should also worship him in smaller areas as well. Let me say it this way. When your God is magnified in your memories, he is also going to be magnified in your present as well. When your God is big in the past, he will be big in the present. Because he's the same God. He is what? A living God. When your God is big in the past, he'll be big in the present. And notice also, when your God is big in your present, your, your problems are smaller. The worshipful heart is a heart that is filled with the greatness and the glory of God and who has a logical faith. If my God can do this, I have nothing to worry about. Matter of fact, that's how Christians think and are called to think. One of my favorite verses in Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice, everything you need in life to love God, enjoy God, obey God, worship God, is guaranteed, is assured. Because God has already done the big thing in delivering his own son for us all. How will he not graciously give you all things? Let's look at the next, the next kind of picture, the life ready to worship God. And not only pivots on the past, but the life ready to worship also prioritizes in the present. And maybe we could fill that out a little bit to make a little bit more sense. The, the life ready for worship prioritizes God's place in the present. The life of worship is the life that prioritizes your relationship with God above all other things and all other relationships. Now... Uh, 5 verse 1 starts a new section in Joshua. Like I said, we're crossing lots of boundaries tonight. This is really the part of Joshua where we get into the conquest narrative, but we'll continue looking at kind of this picture of worship and how how the life of worship is a, a life that prioritizes God in the life. But look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now it happened when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. News travels fast. Especially when it's bad news. Right? This is exactly the report that Rahab gave, actually. She actually used those same words. Our hearts melted because we heard about what your God did in Egypt and to Sion and Og and all those other kings. But notice this is updated news. They are just hearing about the Jordan now. And their hearts have nothing left in them. No spirit left in them to fight. Now, what would be your first priority if you had just crossed enemy lines? What would be the first thing you would do as a commander of the Lord's army? I know what I would do. Because, I mean, I've played capture the flag more than once. Now, growing up 
in Minnesota, we used to play capture the flag on this camp. It was, it was long and narrow. That was kind of the camp. It kind of wrapped around this lake. And so capture the flag was just impossible. There was trees everywhere, woods everywhere, mosquitoes everywhere. And then the, the middle of the camp where the bell tower was is where like the middle line was. That was like the neutral zone where, you know, you jump across. I'm in your territory. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. You know, those kind of things. But capture the flag was terrible because, I mean, if you got across the neutral zone, you had to cover like two square miles of terrain to find a flag that they more than likely were cheating and burying somewhere somewhere anyway. So it was just terrible. Once you got across, you're like, what's the point? But then also, it was because it was such a narrow camp, if you got across, everyone on the enemy team knew you had got across, particularly if you were like really good like me. David's across, everybody. David's across. And so you had one choice. You could either run back to your side like a coward, <laughs> or you could run as fast as you could and try to search around as many trees as you could, as long as you could, and then eventually get captured and put in jail and, and just die in misery. <laughs> it was really a terrible, terrible game. Uh, but, but the point is, the, the one thing I wouldn't do as soon as I crossed over the enemy lines is stop and wait. I gotta move. I have to press my advantage. Otherwise, I'll get caught. Especially if everyone knows that I'm here. But what is God's priority for his people? God basically says in chapter 5 your relationship with me needs to be your top priority. Why? What does he call them to do? Verse 2. And at that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, Make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, circumcision, of course, is a a sign that you are in right covenant relationship with your God. It's a sign that you are a member of the nation of Israel. You are hoping in God's promises that God has made in covenant form to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And you're, you're looking forward to the nation that he is building to bless other nations and the kingdom he is building through them. It's a, it's a sign of covenant loyalty to God. It's a sign that you are an Israelite. It's also a kind of a sign of faith. It's an act of obedience. It's actively trusting in God in many ways. And it was significant. It was significant. You really couldn't be an Israelite without being circumcised. For example, when God is making the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, he, he makes this warning. He says, if any one in your household remains uncircumcised, if he is a covenant breaker who refuses to be circumcised, he is cut off. And, and cut off means you are under God's curse. Cut off means you should expect to receive all of the cursings of the covenant. Matter of fact, when they cut a covenant, they called it cutting a covenant because you cut an animal in half, spread it in two, and the two of you walked through it and basically said, hey, if I don't keep my side of this deal, may I be like this animal that's cut off. So essentially, if if you are not obeying God, if you are in the household of Israel and not pursuing circumcision, you are cut off. You're under God's curse. So this presents a lot of questions for me and should for you. How in the world is Israel at this point in the conquest and they haven't done this yet? This seems like, you know, day one, Israelite 101. How are we not circumcised yet? Well, there's a few reasons why they have to do it now. Uh, Reason number one, the Passover is coming. 5.10 tells us about this. Actually, the Passover is always on the first month of the year. Of course, their calendar was kind of reset when they came out of Egypt. This is the first month of the year for you. You shall keep the Passover on the first month. It's always right on the harvest. At the end of the harvest time, that's when Passover happens. And did you notice there's a timestamp in in the end of four when it talks about how this is, this all happened on the first day 
or the 10th day of the first month. This all happened 40 years almost to the day that Israel was getting ready for the Passover in Egypt. Now they are finally in the promised land, getting ready for the Passover again. So obviously they need to be circumcised. Otherwise they cannot celebrate the Passover. Apparently they didn't celebrate it in the wilderness. Matter of fact, Exodus 12, 44 and 48 um, talks about how no uncircumcised male will be able to eat the Passover, so it was a part of the blessing of God. But why are they doing this now? Well, because, and this is a really silly answer, but the second generation hasn't been circumcised yet. You're like, that's a terrible answer, David. Obviously, they haven't been circumcised yet. But that's all the author really tells us. Look at what he says in verse 4. Now, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way when they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel had walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, were completely destroyed because they did not listen to the voice of Yahweh, to whom Yahweh had sworn that he would not let them see the land which Yahweh had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey." And their sons, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now, that's a little bit weird, but it seems to suggest to me as though the parents of these Israelites, this second generation, did not circumcise their children. That's the only explanation I can make of it. And then... And, and, and really, verse 3 actually suggests that. They had not circumcised them along the way. The parents of these Israelites, while they are being uh, judged for their sin in the wilderness, are refusing or just ignoring the sign of the covenant. Maybe the covenant didn't feel so wonderful to them, so they just chose to ignore it. Either way, they had not been circumcised. And it seems like the suggestion is, is because the wilderness was a time of sin and disobedience and unbelief. And notice, they had not also circumcised their own kids in the wilderness. But that, once again, once again raises the question, why now? Why doesn't God command them to do this, you know, before they enter enemy territory? Why now? Well, I think there's intentionality on God's part. I think God is also showing his faithfulness, right? This is a new people in a new land that he is continuing his covenant loyalty to. Even though their parents sinned, they are a new people. And they can hold his promises as new people as well. This is a fitting end to the wilderness wandering. Matter of fact, look at what God says in verse 9. Yahweh said to Joshua, after they had done this, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of the place was called Gilgal, which in Hebrew means rolled or rolling. That's where the name comes from. What, what does this mean? What is God rolling away? What is the reproach? Well, it's the scoffing of the Egyptians when they hear about Israel wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. That God can't save. That's what they're saying. That God can't save his people. They're just wandering around. No, today I have brought you into the land and I have shown you my faithfulness. God is showing his faithfulness. And that's really what he wants to sink home for them now that they're in the land. Look at my faithfulness. I have rolled away your reproach. But there's another reason. And, and to me, I think this may be the biggest reason, the best reason why they have to be circumcised now. God is testing their faith. Now, without going into detail, circumcision will uh, physically immobilize you for quite some time. You will need to heal for a long time. You will be in a vulnerable position for a long time because you cannot walk very easily. Matter of fact, you have to lie down to heal. Notice it even talks about this. Uh, they had to, in verse 8, stay in their camp until they were healed. Circumcision is naturally debilitating. Matter of fact, there's an interesting story. By interesting, I mean crazy, in Genesis 34, 25, where it shows that a whole city got circumcised and they were wiped out by two guys with a sword. So circumcision kind of puts you in a vulnerable position. Like I said, it's a crazy story. 
And perhaps, and perhaps also this is another reason why kind of the strategy for Jericho, this is kind of a funny little thought on my part, sorry, uh, was Israel, all you can do is walk around the city. They couldn't do anything else physically because they were still healing. But either way, why did God make them do this now? Because he wants to test their faith. He wants them to prioritize a right relationship with him, enjoying a celebration, the Passover feast with him, above all other things. He wants them to fear him above any other nations or peoples, right? He wants them to prioritize their hearts in him first. Because, you know, you, you actually show your heart by the priorities in your life, don't you? You, you? you demonstrate what's on your heart by the priorities that, that kind of turn your day. And God is saying, number one thing, first thing you do in the land I want you to show your heart by trusting in me to protect you from the enemy. Well, you, well, you focus on faithfulness to me. You show your heart by the priorities you set. But I'd also argue that you actually set your heart by the priorities that you make. Right? Sometimes you don't feel like pursuing the priorities of pursuing God first. But by doing those things, you are setting your heart to trust God. You have to actively pray for faith when you are weak. Actively pray, Lord, help me to prioritize you now, today, even when I don't. You show your heart by the priorities you set, but you also set your heart by the priorities that you make. So the life ready to worship is two things. It it pivots off the past. It prioritizes God in the present. And in three seconds, here's one more point. This is really a short, this is just one page. Uh, Number three, the life ready to worship plans on God's future provision. The life ready to worship plans on God's future provision. Uh, The worshiping life is actively anticipating God's extraordinary and ordinary provision. The worshiping life says, I can be content because I know that God will give me what I need. Once again, historical note, this is the harvest time, you know, the worst time to cross the Jordan. But it's also, if you think about it, the best time to cross the Jordan. Why? It's the harvest time. There's food everywhere. These people can eat for days, and they don't have to do a thing. The food's already been planted. It's already harvest time. Notice what it says in verse 10. The sons of Israel camped at Gilgal and celebrated the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the yield of the land, unleavened cakes and roasted grain. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the produce of the land of Canaan during that year. Now I want you to notice two things. This is actually marvelous, these three verses. Those are marvelous little things. Notice, number one, just this random reference to manna. Do you realize that for the last 40 years, God has been feeding these people with manna every day? Just this little historical note just kind of like assumes that. God has provided extraordinarily for his people every day of their wilderness wandering. Every day. To the point, perhaps, where his extraordinary work maybe got ordinary to the people. But think about that. Every day, God was providing. The days that they were grumbling and complaining, God was providing. The morning that they made the golden calf, God was providing. The morning after they made the golden calf, God was providing for them. 
The morning they rejected God's provision of the land at Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea and wanted to go back to Egypt, God was providing for them. The morning after they welcomed Moabite prostitutes into their camp, God was providing for them. God's kindness and provision to them was extraordinary. And they should worship him every single day for his kindness. And you should worship God, right? His kindness continues even in your sin and unbelief. He keeps being kind towards you. Matter of fact, such kindness, Romans 2 tells us, right, is meant to lead us to repentance, to turn our life around to say, I'm going to stop grumbling, I'm going to stop complaining, I'm going to stop arguing, I am going to start worshiping. Because God is providing every single day for me. But notice also, that's the extraordinary way God provides. Notice, there's an ordinary way God provides. The main way God provides for you is actually quite normal. God sometimes uses ordinary means, right? And that is working with your hands. Getting a job, gathering food. This is the ordinary way God provides. But notice, this is God's provision. This is God's gift. This is a cause for worship in your life. Thank you, God, that I have all of these ordinary provisions. Maybe our life would be more full of worship if we started to think about all the ways God ordinarily provides for us. Maybe you don't think God's provision for you is all that great. Well, you got here, right? You didn't get in an accident. The other driver in the other lane didn't crash into you on the way here. You had air to breathe this morning, right? Uh, Nothing else massive happened in your life. There's been actually a lot of ordinary provisions of God's grace in your day, and you should be constantly thankful and worshiping God for that. Matter of fact, God doesn't normally provide by miracles. The extraordinary are extraordinary because they don't happen all that often. Ordinarily, God just keeps providing in regular means. And we should praise God in the extraordinary and the ordinary. But a life that is ready to worship plans on God's provision and is expectant of God's provision. Let's pray. <laughs> Dear God in heaven, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this blessing of your word. Thank you for the the kindness it is to us and the grace and the mercy it is to us to show us all of your, your greatness. We pray that we'd be people that are ready to worship you and praise you more. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.